the great steps in evolution came about through different species, different organisms, learning how to relate symbiotically together for mutual benefit. Each different entity has a part to play in making the actual full abundance of life what it is. Hello, and welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode, we speak to somebody who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this conversation, I connected with Jeremy Lent, who describes himself as an author and integrator. According to George Monbiot, he's one of the greatest thinkers of our age. He's born in the UK and has been based for many years in the United States, now living in Berkeley, California. He is founder of the not-profit Leology Institute and author of two books, The Patterning Instinct and The Web of Meaning. It's the second book that formed the basis of this conversation. We literally talked about life, the universe and everything, including the differences between Eastern and Western perspectives, culture, language and thinking the important distinction between the scientific method and reductionism, the fact that meaning is emergent and stems from the interconnections between things and people, the pros and cons of the rise of mindfulness and its alter ego muck mindfulness, especially in and around Silicon Valley, and lastly, how all of these ideas can be embedded practically, in particular when tackling the climate emergency. Throughout his book, The Web of Meaning, is a character that he calls Uncle Bob, who is a staunch critic, continuously challenging the main thesis at every step along the way. So I started out by asking him, who is Uncle Bob and what does he believe and why? Enjoy. Uncle Bob is this really kind of annoying type of person who kind of shuts down any sort of conversation that might be looking at how we can change the world. And for me, Uncle Bob is a real person, but it's like a composite of different people. It's like all the way back to when I was a teenager and my father, um, who who passed away uh, some years back, but he was just, would espouse those kinds of things about this is just the way the world works and we all need to be selfish and competitive and that's how it is. And so we hear that everywhere is the point. And in a way, the book is a a kind of a long, detailed, comprehensive response to the Uncle Bubs of the world. There is a different way. And that's something that took me years and years of my own research and spiritual practice and all kinds of unfolding of looking at different realities to realize myself. Yeah, I found myself nodding along with familiarity with with that characterization, at least. When when did you uh, escape the shackles of Uncle Bob? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Even though I'm offering a riposte to Uncle Bob, I'm offering a different kind of worldview, basically. But I... I've lived in that world of Uncle Bob for a big part of my own life. Not so much actually when I was an adolescent. And when I went to Cambridge, I was 
totally rejecting the sort of mainstream world. I was living in a squat in Cambridge and uh, just kind of didn't want anything to do with it. Um, but then actually I ended up going, I went to the States. I married somebody who'd been a hippie actually, but then she wanted to sort of go straight in her words, kind of quote unquote. And I went into business school and I spent years of my life in business, actually starting an internet company. And that was where I got very much immersed in that worldview of saying like, you know, actually being successful, it's possible to sort of be successful and um, make, start a company and make tons of money and we're doing good for the world. Um, and it's very easy for people to get lulled into that way of thinking and feel very self-satisfied about that. It was only after a lot of everything I'd built around sort of crashed around me, actually. Um, my wife at the time, who passed away some years back, um, she began to get very sick. I left the company to look after her. The company was too young. It was an internet company and it kind of crashed. And I determined that I was going to actually make something truly meaningful where I was going to spend the rest of my life. I wasn't going to take somebody else's word for it. And so I started my own journey of really looking, where does meaning actually come from? What is truly meaningful? And that led to a lot of unfolding, which led me to write this, the first book I wrote, The Patterning Instinct, which looks at a cultural history of different ways in which meaning has arisen for different cultures throughout history. And this new book, The Web of Meaning, actually offers a different way of making meaning than our mainstream worldview tells us. But so much of what science tells us is that actually there's no meaning. Science is separate from spirituality. And it took me a while to realize that that was actually not the case. In recent years, it's become quite fashionable, especially in Silicon Valley with, you know, billionaire Jack Dorsey and, you know, f f big kind of tech bro t Silicon Valley entrepreneurs to sort of embrace mindfulness and meditation and some of these things. But I was just, I was just curious what you make of that trend, that phenomenon. Yeah, we need to look at that from a nuanced perspective. It's become relatively simple and fashionable and true to a, a great degree to kind of dismiss that as um, there's this great word, muck mindfulness that the author Ronald Purser wrote a book um, in, with that title. And absolutely right on. It's very easy for mindfulness to be sort of created, put in a little container where you feel that you're becoming spiritually aware, um, but actually you're rejecting the real recognition of what your place is in the much larger scheme of things. And even companies then encourage mindfulness for their employees really as a way to just kind of keep them karma, almost like tranquilized, um, so as not to recognize the destructive environment they're in and the destruction that they may be part of as part of sort of the bigger context. Uh, and that's the kind of notion of muck mindfulness, where you just take this wonderful idea and you brand it and make money out of it, etc. That's all true. At the same time, we have to recognize that mindfulness does have a, a wonderful way of bringing people to connect with deeper layers of reality. Um, and it can be intrinsically a positive thing. Um, it can be subverted, but it's, it can be intrinsically positive. And I think the key is that when you approach mindfulness is to not do it from this point of view of this um, sense of our individual self as this kind of autonomous unit, but to actually look at it as a gateway to recognizing our connectedness, to actually move out of this kind of neoliberal, that catch-22 mindset we were talking about, where, which is very much focused on the I and what's in it for me. 
Well, you talk about that sort of uh, the dualistic mindset that underpins kind of Western culture. And you also make a distinction in your book between the sort of scientific method and uh, reductionism, uh, uh, which are sometimes conflated. I just wonder if you could elaborate a bit more on on those dualities and, and, and how they inform the world that we now yeah, live in. That's a, a key point. And it's one that took me some years to really finally sort of realize um, what's actually going on there. Um, and, you know, of course, almost all of us know this, this kind of theme from our worldview today, which is that science is different from anything spiritual. And we think that that is true of science in general. And so either you have to have a scientific worldview, which is kind of conflated with what's actually a reductionist worldview. We're told that actually the whole universe is just little parts. And uh, whether it's chemistry, biology, you name it, the only way we understand things is by reducing them to their tiniest parts and looking at how those work. And when you apply that to the whole universe, um, then you have people like the Nobel Prize winning laureate Stephen Weinberg saying, the more we know about the universe, the more meaningless it appears. And for many years, I was looking at, at science, and that seemed like the only way to understand it. But here's the thing, that is actually not all science. That's an approach to science that is known as reductionism that began in the 17th century uh, with Descartes and Francis Bacon and others. And it's incredibly successful. And we can thank reductionism for all the technologies that we enjoy today, for the fact that you and I can speak to each other from thousands of miles away, um, every, every, so much that we can be grateful for. But the thing is, reductionists got so taken by the power of their methodology that they then made it like an ontological leap of faith and said, well, this applies to the entire universe. And the only way to understand the universe is by breaking down its parts. And any other way to understand the universe, therefore, has to be invalid. And that is a leap of faith, pretty much as big a leap of faith as somebody saying, oh, I believe in God. God must have created the universe or, or whatever it might be. But there is actually a different form of approaching science which you can think of in terms of complexity uh, theory and system science, chaos theory, and even network theory, all these sciences, every much as rigorous as reductionist science, look at the connections between things and recognize that there are patterns in the way things connect that tell us oftentimes more about those things than the things themselves. And so when you start looking at those relationships, it opens up a different way of relating to our reality. And you get concepts like emergence, the way that um, a, 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 something, something can emerge at a different level of complexity from self-organized complex parts connecting up in a coherent way. And in fact, when you look at some of the most important things in our life, whether you can life itself or consciousness or say meaning, or even things like music, um, or friendship, these things, or love, any of these things actually are not things. They're actually processes. They're actually emergent results of complex relationships between things rather than the things themselves. That's where reductionism, uh, just by making this leap of faith and saying you can only understand reality by looking at the parts, is actually limiting itself. Um, and it's actually refusing to look at a different dimension of the way we can relate to the cosmos. Mm. I just wonder if we can give an example of, of that emergent 
meaning that comes from the connection between things. And I don't know which example springs to mind, but one that you write about towards the end of your book is the phenomenon of a rainbow, which uh, is different for everybody. Well, so the rainbow is a lovely example because it, it's so clear and easy to get. That when you, you know, if you think about the last time you saw a rainbow, and you, you know it's you, you saw it, it's right there. But of course, a reductionist might come along and say, "There's no such thing as a rainbow." Um, and uh, what and what there actually is is. Uh, there's sun um, hitting the the drops of rain. There's a refraction of the light. There's your eyes that pick it up, and there's your retina that distinguishes the colors, and your consciousness that actually puts it together in the form of a rainbow. So the rainbow itself only exists as an emergent entity. But then you say you can say, well, okay, so it doesn't really exist. But what exists is millions and millions of rainbow potentials. So imagine as you're looking at that rainbow, um, it's not like there's a, a million rainbows right there, but there's the potential for a rainbow depending on who's attuning to those, um, those other connections. And so that's where what we recognize is that so, so many of these things like meaning or, or friendship or so many of the, uh, these other things in life that are, arise as emergent entities arise because we have to engage with them. We basically realize the potential for those things. Um, but there's also uh, what I find is a very powerful way to look at the importance of connections is something that is kind of, when you think about it uh, for a moment, it kind of boggles the mind a bit. But just think for an, a moment about a picture of yourself when you were a little child. And, you know, you can look at that picture. And you know that's you, and you even might have a memory of, of the sending around that picture. But here's the thing. Um, if you look at yourself now, there's not a single molecule in your body right now that was in that little child. Um, most of the cells are different. There are some cells that stay in the body um, all the time, but even those cells are always changing their component parts. So you can pretty much be sure there's not a molecule of that kid in your body now. And yet that was you. So what is it that connects you to that person? And the answer is it's the way in which those molecules in that little kid related to each other that actually remains stable through all of those years. So it's not the stuff itself, but it's the relationship between things that have a coherent and stable and resilient set of patterns that actually is you. That's what is, um, arises um, and sort of stays over all your life. And you, in fact, as I describe in the book, we can even look at the notion that after we die, those patterns that we have put out into the world in our relationships with others um, and in the things that we've done and said, there are certain unique patterns, almost like fingerprints, but they're like ripples that go out into the world that remain even after you're dead. And so... Um, part of that jump between science and spirituality is that an indigenous culture um, might look at those patterns and say, right, that's the person's spirit. The person is dead, but that spirit remains with me. And we can actually look at that same concept from a scientific point of view and talk about it in terms of attractors and coherent, self-organized relationships, and actually talk about these patterns that also remain. So that's part of this ability to kind of jump between a scientific uh, understanding of things that's based on system science and more sort of spiritual ways of looking at life. 
I remember reading an article years ago, and you touch upon this uh, in great detail in your book as well, that this dualistic mindset that underpins kind of Western culture is, is, is a Western European mindset. So the article I read years ago was around quantum physics, which scientists and philosophers have grappled with ever since it was discovered 100 years ago. But when that was explained to indigenous Americans, they didn't see the duality. They didn't see the problem. I wonder if you could just say a bit more about the kind of the geography of, of some of these ideas as well and how that's playing out, especially now that we're becoming so much more globalized and intermingling these cultures and these ideas. Well, I think that's um, an important thing that you just touched on at the end is that it's really only in recent times that we've begun as humans to develop the potential for a truly sort of global consciousness. And maybe in the 20th century, there was a lot of what the philosopher Edward Said talked about as Orientalism. There was this kind of recognition that the sort of mysterious East, if you will, had all these things that they could teach us in the West. But it was very much romanticized. It almost helped to create more dualities. Though, And I'm trying to offer something very different in what I'm putting out there is a, a different worldview, which is much more integrative. And it's not saying that um, ideas that come from East Asia or Buddhism or indigenous wisdom are, are right and Western ideas are wrong or that the Eastern is good and West is bad or anything like that at all. But it's much more that there are ways in which our Western mindsets have led to major imbalances in our relationship with the natural world and our relationships with each other as a human society. If we can incorporate some of the great findings and insights from other traditions, recognize how they actually are corroborated by modern scientific understanding, we can forge a new, truly integrated worldview for humanity to thrive far more into the distant future. But to your point, what East Asian thought has focused on for millennia has been looking specifically at the relationship between things rather than the things themselves. And that is where what they have developed, whether in Buddhist wisdom or a lot of insights I talk about in the book, come from Neo-Confucianism, which is a very uh, sort of unfashionable term, if you will. Like, well, what's Neo-Confucianism? It actually was an incredibly integrative way of making sense of the universe that developed in Song Dynasty China about a thousand years ago, which actually incorporated some of the best insights from Taoism and Confucianism and Buddhism. And what they developed was a way of looking at the universe that was comprised of qi, which was really like we think of as matter or energy, but also what they called li, which refers to the relationship between all the different elements of qi. The, essentially the self-organized principles of, of how things relate to each other. And so in many ways, they were focusing their attention philosophically on what now modern system sciences are beginning to focus their scientific attention on. And the recognition of that allowed them to develop a lot of wisdom about true deep ways of understanding our connection with each other and with all of life that we're mm. just beginning to unfold now in the West. I don't know if you have read a book called The Geography of Thought by Richard Nisbet. Yes. Which, uh, yeah, it's a great book, but there was an example that he, I remember he quotes, which has stayed with me. People were given three objects or three pictures, and it was uh, a cow, a sheep, and grass. And they were asked to pick the two that go together. Do you remember this one? Absolutely, and, yes. Um, 
and statistically, people people from the West were much more likely to lump together the sheep and the cow because they're the mammals, they're the objects. Whereas I think in Eastern cultures, they were much more likely to put together the cow and the grass because the cow eats the grass. It's in relationship exactly. with the grass. Yes, it's, it's true. And, they, and there's a, a number of different experiments like that. And it's really fascinating. And uh, uh, another one I found so interesting is that they, they would um, have an interaction with somebody and then offer them a gift at the end which was like a colored pencil. And they had about 80% of the pencils were one color and there were a few unusual colors. So people from the West would want the special one, the one that was the unusual color, and they would take that. <laughs> people from East Asia would want to sort of go with the general flow and they would take one of the normal ones. Like So there were all these things that show how subtly we in the West focus on the individuality of things as being the absolute the sort of key parameter. And in the East, it's much more focused on the relationships and fitting into a society. And again, that doesn't say one is right and one is wrong, but it's when we can integrate those two, we get to a much fuller and richer way of being with each other and with um, life on earth. Absolutely. I mean, these things are deeply encoded in our culture and our language. So I believe in English, we have far more nouns than verbs, or the ratio of nouns to verbs is much higher than in, in, uh, in Mandarin Chinese, for instance, where there are far fewer nouns and far more uh, doing words. There are so many wonderful things in your book. So one, I don't know if this is your words or you are quoting someone else. You say that life is a four billion year old rebellion against entropy, a wonderful phrase. Can you, uh, maybe maybe not everyone is entirely familiar with the concept of disorder or entropy, but yeah, how is how is life a rebellion against it? Just sort of by way of context, really what I'm doing in large sections of the book is looking at the implications of what arises when we actually do understand that our entire cosmos is arising from deep interconnectedness. And in most cases, I'm looking at what scientists themselves have uncovered and then seeing how that relates to what other wisdom traditions have also pointed us to. But in this case, what we find is when we, when we actually look at the source of life itself on earth, scientists have now done a great job looking at the origins of life billions of years ago on Earth from a physics perspective and from the recognition that life itself is a form of self-organization. So it was actually a physicist called Owen Schrodinger back in the 1940s who wrote this great book, What is Life?, where he established these really powerful ideas. And here, he was one of the great Nobel Prize winning physicist who really came up with the new physics in the 20th century. And when he applied his understanding to life, he started on this basis of the second law of thermodynamics, which is considered to be the most fundamental law in all physics by many people. Einstein said, it's the one law that will end up repealing all the other laws that will never be repealed. And it's a law that says basically that energy is dissipating in the universe. It goes from an organized state to a less organized state. And when you put that out over billions or trillions of years in the, gal in the universe, oftentimes physicists say the ultimate end of the universe will be this kind of heat death. Well, there'll be nothing other than just everything will have 
gotten so dissipated, there'll be nothing there. And when you think about it, hugely depressing in terms of this notion of a meaningless universe, whatever you might be thinking. But this is what was so amazing is that Schrodinger showed, and other people, other biologists have now gone much more detail to show this, life itself is a rebellion against that entropy that it actually takes the entropy and it reorganizes it in a form that it continues to um, metabolize and continue to maintain the organization. It's a continual flow of taking that stuff that's out there, organizing it in a certain way through metabolism and rejecting the stuff that doesn't work for the individual organism and, and, and then continuing to actually replicate itself into the future. In fact, it's considered that the first proto-cells in life were just basically um, what are called autocatalytic reactions of molecules that figured out how to do that process, take energy in and maintain themselves. They then ultimately evolved to become living cells. And ever since then, what you get to realize when you look at, again, at the connections between things, rather than just the simple cells themselves, you recognize this process of negative entropy has actually been unfolding for billions of years unbroken. And you can actually see evolution from the perspective of systems sciences as life's way of finding more and more complex and efficient ways to take energy in from the sun and other uh, any other energy sources and transform them into this ongoing process of negative entropy. And what is incredible about that is that you realize that's what has led to the richness of ecosystems, that what life itself has discovered, if we consider life as this ongoing process, is that actually diversity, diversification of things is one way to maintain this resilient flow. And another thing that evolutionary biologists have discovered in total contravention to this kind of selfish gene proto-theory or whatever from Richard Dawkins is that actually the great steps in evolution where life developed ways to do this negative entropy more effectively came about through different species, different organisms, learning how to relate symbiotically together for mutual benefits so that rather than everything becoming this homogenized blob, you get the beauty and richness of our ecosystems where each different entity has a part to play in making the actual full abundance of life what it is. That's a powerful way a new way, a different way, but absolutely scientifically valid way to understand our place in life. And it also leads to a realization that as humans, we're not fundamentally separate from life. You know, we're told in the West that there's humans over here and, and the rest of nature is like this machine and nature is like a resource for us to use for our own benefit. But once we begin to realize our deep interdependence with all of this, that we are life, it begins to kind of shift at a deep level our very sense of identity. And part of us can begin to identify with all of life. We realize that actually we're just sort of little eddies of consciousness as part of this unfolding flow that's been going on for billions of years. Yeah, I mean, that's just kind of mind-blowing. And you quote 
Norbert Wiener in your book that we are but whirlpools in the river of ever-flowing water was a lovely uh, phrase. And as long as there is life, there's no such thing as death. We are eddies of consciousness. So this is, I guess, the kind of Buddhist or concept that we're all one, you know, part of kind of one energy or, or one thing. How do we make sense of all of that? I mean, so at one level, that's kind of reassuring but another level that's where does jeremy and roland sit right. amongst uh, yes, amongst exactly. all this web of interconnection that's a very very important point and it leads to what i see as a very important theme that i explore in detail through the book is the theme of integration because basically oftentimes people when they're sort of told oh well the Buddhists say we're, we're all one or, or any other spiritual tradition where people reject that oftentimes quite validly saying Bullshit. We're not all one. You know, if, if somebody is 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 being tortured somewhere a thousand miles away, I'm not feeling it. And, you know, I don't want to be all one. And I've got my own unique um, skills and special things about me. I don't want to be sort of part of almost like that sort of Star Trek notion of the, the Borg, this kind of sort of entity that refuses to accept individuality. And I think that's a very valid sense of feelings to have when we're told we are all one. But this is where the notion of integration is so important. Integration we can think of as this, as this idea of unity with differentiation. And sometimes you can think of it as with differentiation and balance also. But the thing about integration is this is what life has actually evolved over billions of years. Everything from uh, within, if you look at the makeup of a particular cell to an organism, to an ecosystem, or all of life on the whole um, earth system, in each case, Everything arises from integration, from different parts of a system doing its unique thing and also being part of a larger whole. We see that in our consciousness, how we have trillions of different neurons, all like unbelievable number of connections that they're making. And how does that lead to consciousness? Through parts of the brain and different neurons, each doing their unique thing, but actually binding together from moment to moment in unique ways and causing a coherent sense of everything that we experience around us, allowing that to flow. So all of these things in life, whether something like consciousness or life itself, arises through integration. And from a spiritual perspective, I think integration plays an equally important part, that we can begin to recognize that spiritual growth is not about sort of giving up our individual identity. And sometimes there's these kind of statements you'll find in Buddhist tradition saying, there is no such thing as self. Awakening is realizing there is no self. But I think we can look at it in a little bit more nuanced way. And we can say, actually, that sort of awakening can, can be recognizing that there is no such thing as a fixed self. There is no fixed boundary that separates us in some way from everything else around us. We can realize that that sense of self, that sense of identity, is something that is another emergent construction that we do through our consciousness. And that's not to say that that in itself is bad. In just the same way that if you look at a single cell, every cell has a membrane, and that membrane separates the cell from the rest of the organism, whatever uh, medium it's in. But it uses that membrane to take in what's good and to expel out of its own, its own cohesive structure what is not good for it. And so similarly, as a self, we can think of our very identity as a membrane like that. And by understanding it as a membrane, we can even think of our own skin and know that if we've been cut somewhere and we develop a scar 
that scar is a little sort of tighter and it's not as open and uh, sort of malleable to, um, to be taking things in and putting things out as our regular skin. And we know that healthy skin will do that, will perspire and will take in warmth and it'll protect us from uh, microbes, etc. Similarly, a healthy identity is one that is open to its relationship with everything around it while maintaining a sense of identity. So basically, the path that that offers is this recognition that it is possible by recognizing the sort of fractal way in which we are part of something bigger to not give up the self, but recognize that the self is just one layer out of a whole series of layers of identity that can expand all the way to all of humanity, all of life, and even all of the universe, but without giving up our individual selfhood. It's like eating a wonderful meal with all the different flavors and all the different ingredients on the plate. So rather than just mushing it all together in a blender, so it's just one homogenous gloop, it's retaining the the individual elements, but the whole being greater than the, the sum yes. of the parts. That's actually a, a great analogy that, in fact, the Chinese philosophers used to explain what they called harmony, which is sometimes misinterpreted by people when they take a look at what I'm writing as if harmony is just another synonym for cooperation. But harmony is very much to your point. It's actually incorporates both cooperation and competition. And, and when the Chinese sages would talk about harmony in a system, they would use the exact analogy of a soup. They'd say, you know, if you want a good soup, you don't sort of just do more and more of the same ingredient so that everything will agree with each other. But, you know, you take a spice here and you take sort of the meat from there and you take the barley here and you put it together in a way that all those different flavors together create this harmonic richness. That's a wonderful way to look both at how life works and also at how we can organize society. We can recognize people's ethnic specialness. We can recognize people's identity as being parts of particular groups. We don't have to re reject that. And we can also recognize that by being part of particular groups, they can add to the overall richness of a diverse, um, multiracial, multi-ethnic society in a way that's better for everybody. So I'd, lo I'd love to just explore with you some of the practical implications and how we can apply some of these ideas in our life and our work. What One of the things towards the end of your book you said is that the most dangerous technology threatening humanity's future is the limited liability company. I uh, just wonder if you could explain <laughs> why, why you believe that to be the case and, and what we perhaps should do about that. All these different elements in life that we are told we should look at separately, whether it's politics or climate or spirituality or whatever, that actually they are all related to each other in deep and uh, deeply profound way. And this is what I try to show in the book. And so as we begin to look at our place in the universe, we begin to see that it really matters um, how we relate to what is going on out there. So the book sort of towards the end of it, it starts to look at the incredible destructive activities happening by our civilization to the earth right now. And so to your point, this worldview that of separation that is dominant is one that leads to naturally towards extraction and exploitation. 
And it basically says, well, if the rest of life is nothing but a resource, let's exploit it to the maximum for our benefit. And it's no surprise that in the, around the 17th century in Europe, it wasn't just this modern worldview got developed, but that was also the place where capitalism first arose. That was the place where colonialism first arose, where people figured they could just go out and just exploit everyone who didn't have the technology they had in Europe um, in every which way without any restraint causing genocide. That's where racism and white supremacy arose. And that was also where the limited liability corporation was first established. And, and at first we might say, well, that's just some legal um, nicety. What, what significance does that have? But the corporation can be understood basically as a legal structure that empowers that particular kind of exploiting, exploiting of other human beings and exploiting of all other non-humans on the earth to the maximum way possible where it actually says you're allowed to get all the benefits of that exploitation, but you limit the risk that arises from the exploitation. And just as importantly, you don't have to be responsible for the true cost of that exploitation. So you can just put the pollution out there in the world. And so it put in place a system that actually encourages the exploitation to be increased as much as possible, as rapidly as possible, with very little limiting it. So th this is the, the situation we're in right now, is if you look at the 100 largest economies around the world, it turns out the 69 of those 100 are not actually countries, but transnational corporations, which have been designed with one bottom line, to maximize shareholder value, and to do that by increasing profits as much as possible and as rapidly as possible. And the irony is that here in the United States and in other countries too, corporations have been given the right of personhood. But if they were actually persons, there'd only be one word for them. They'd be, have to be viewed as psychopaths because it's only a psychopath that has this one goal to maximize for themselves with absolutely zero empathic sense of compassion or any of the moral values that humans actually have. So we're in this dire place right now where our world is essentially governed, is controlled. Whether we look at media or politics or economics or finance, and every area is controlled by basically these forces that are psychopathic, that are looking to doing nothing but and turn the world into the monetary financial system as rapidly as possible and make humans basically nothing other than consumers and producers of the same process. Hmm. You go on, I think it's in the same chapter, to list in detail some of the, the, the solutions or the ideas. And it's kind of, a, I don't mean to say this in a dismissive way, but it's kind of a shopping list of kind of progressive ideas. It's universal basic income. It's kind of reducing the, the wealth inequality. It's the B Corp movement. It's donut economics. It's circular economy. Right. It's 15 minute cities. That, you know, these are all things that I think quite a few people that listen to this podcast will be familiar with, with at least some of those. Uh, but then you immediately or almost immediately say, well, how do we actually get to make some of this stuff happen? Because, you know, yes, we're in this extractive kind of capitalist model that is wreaking havoc. And there are some solutions and some ideas out there, um, which you which you talk about. But how, how do we shift from where we are now to where we need to get to? I guess the first thing to look at is this there's this big idea, if you will, which is not my idea. And in fact, to your point, like all of these different ideas that I put together, I don't claim ownership of, but I'm actually trying to highlight how these other 
really progressive, brilliant ideas by many people relate to each other. And what an idea that really enthused me that I actually end the book with is this notion of an ecological civilization. And what that talks about is this realization that when we look at what's going wrong with our society, it's not enough just to do a few fixes. I mean, even though it'd be great to invest in renewables and get rid of fossil fuels, absolutely necessary, but that's not enough to change the direction of where we're going. It's a little bit like, and I use this analogy, like if you've got some computer system that's got more and more bugs and you've got hundreds of engineers going around trying to fix this bug and that bug, and then somebody comes along and says, hey, we've got, we need to fix the operating system because that's what's actually causing these problems. And everyone says, we've got no time for that. You know, we, we just got to keep fixing these bugs. But ultimately, it's what you need to do in order to turn things around. So similarly, if you look at the underlying operating system of our society right now, it's that one we've been talking about. It's really the underlying basis is wealth accumulation, that it looks at things as being separate. And it's the, the fundamentals are all about exploitation, extraction, and the ultimate value is to accumulate as much wealth and status as possible. So the idea is, what would it look like if we actually considered building our civilization on life-affirming values? And actually starting out from this, looking at what actually ecologies have evolved over billions of years to be incredibly rich and successful and resilient in spite of all the things going on, on a sustainable way. Um, and when you do that and you start looking at a civilization from the basis of saying not how do you accumulate wealth, but how can you actually optimize for long-term human well-being and flourishing? on a planet that is regenerated and is itself flourishing. And the, the fundamental concept around that is one we learn from life itself, which is this concept of mutually beneficial symbiosis, of actually humans can learn, can actually work together in ways that actually are to each other's benefit. We don't have to see our relationships as a zero-sum game. And similarly, humans can um, relate to the rest of the earth not in terms of how do we maximize our exploitation, but what does life want from us? How can we use technology to actually benefit the vibrant flourishing of life while it benefits us as humans? Those are, are challenges. Um, I'm not saying that the answers are necessarily easy, but if we ask those questions from the outset, we'll come up with very different answers than the ones that we are used to hearing right now. Hmm. One thing that you talk about as being needed is like a, the, the Declaration of Human Rights. We need something, a sort of universal declaration of natural rights, or I yes. can't quite remember the phrase you used, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to the concept of natural capital, which, you know, uh, where we put a price on trees and rivers uh, to, to feed it into the capitalist system, which hasn't worked. So if we did embrace this idea of a universal declaration of natural rights, what would it say? What, what would it, or how would it start perhaps? Yes. And, and actually the language is already in place. There was a wonderful meeting that took place in, um, I think Bolivia about 10 or 15 years ago with emissaries from all around the world, actually putting out a declaration of the rights of mother earth. I think they, they called it. And there's been quite carefully thought through. And it's this notion of recognizing that life itself in the terms of things we've been talking about today, is this complex, self-organized, um, holistic system. And that life itself has a right to maintain that holistic integrity. 
And we are part of that system rather than being separate from it. But we can also add this layer of scientific understanding that life does have this integrity. And that's what we need to maintain. And we as humans get to flourish when we recognize those rights. And another way in which we actually are seeing that right now expressed in legal terms is through this recognition of getting ecocide defined as a crime. And ecocide, we can understand, is basically the killing of an entire ecosystem, which might be something that's done by a corporation such as Chevron that has put massive, horrendous pollution of oil waste um, in in the jungles in Peru and Ecuador and Bolivia, places like that. Once we recognize ecocide as a crime, it could be actually prosecuted at, in, in The Hague by the International Criminal Court. And it would have another way of putting the brakes on the ways in which transnational corporations right now can basically do whatever they want. And right now, there are legal experts, and there are some countries in Europe have actually given the go-ahead to come up with the right language for this. And there are legal experts coming up with a language to define ecocide and look at how it could be prosecuted. These are some of the exciting steps forward that would really transform the way we look at life. Hmm. Change happens gradually, then suddenly. But it does feel with the pandemic and everything else that there is a big shift happening, Or, uh, but, we're, but it's hard to see it because we're so in it. And I'm just curious how the last 12 months or 18 months has influenced your ideas and your your view about yeah where we are in this transition to a more sustainable future. yeah when people looked at the impact that covid had and said oh this is changing everything this is a fundamental transformation honestly i was i've been a little bit more skeptical about that because when we look at the changes that climate breakdown is going to bring to our society the disruptions then I think we're going to look back at COVID as this kind of sweet little and um, kind of fun dress rehearsal of the kind of disruptions we really looking at. I mean, if, if COVID was like a sort of a strong, uh, like a wave that caused people to um, flay about a little bit, there's like a whole tidal wave coming up behind it. And that is, is frightening. Um, it's terribly frightening for anybody who actually looks at these numbers. I mean, I'm here in California, the Northwest of all of North America has just been undergoing the most extreme heat um, ever in all in all recorded history, as many as a billion um, sea animals were reckoned to have died, just boiled basically by um, the, this heat in just the last week or two. And this is all the stuff that's happening at one and a half degrees increase in temperature rise, and we're heading towards three degrees. It's terrifying what we have to look forward to. But at the same time, along with that sense of realizing these massive disruptions, is this realization that it is only when things begin to unravel in our society that we have the opportunity to reframe the structures of that society itself. So it's like as things unravel, as they begin to fall apart, which they are doing, new generations of people, like people of the, of the Greta Thunberg generation and younger coming up, will begin to say, we don't accept what our parents' generation have been telling us. We need a different way of organizing things. And so the very unraveling of society gives the opportunity to rework it, to offer a society for the future that could actually be fundamentally different. It's a great challenge. I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not even saying that it's the most likely 
way in which things will unfold in the next couple of generations. But what I am saying is, is the by far and away the only hope that we humans and all of life have to actually flourish together into the long-term future. And so it's, it's worth all of us giving it the best shot we have. And the realization that as a complex system of life that we're part of, we're all co-creating that future. It's not like something that's happening out there and we're separate from it. This this deep realization that everything each of us does, the ways in which we relate to each other and to all of life on earth is actually part of what will potentiate that positive future to happen. Thank you, Jeremy. I really got a huge amount from that conversation. And I was struck by what he said about the connection between things being as important, if not more important, than the things that they are connecting. And then towards the end of the conversation, where we talk about what all of this means, the most dangerous technology in the world is the limited liability company. And we need a sort of universal declaration of natural rights to reassert the importance and value of nature. If you're interested in finding out a bit more about Jeremy, please check out the links in the episode description. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community focused on building and scaling net zero ventures. We couldn't do this podcast without the thanks of all of our patrons, members, and clients. So thank you to you all for your support. If you want to find out a bit more about us, please visit www.weareliminal.co. As ever, it'd be great if you could like and subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who you think might like it as well. Until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.